Well, gra- grab your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If you're not there already. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are studying, going through, looking at um, the priority of love in the family. Um, and I'm going to read the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 13 to get us started here this morning. Um, it says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And so we have seen in our first few weeks of looking at these Uh, these verses first and foremost the priority of love uh, in that it needs to motivate be the motivating factor between um, with everything that we're doing If we're not motivated by love then the things that we're doing are useless and then Paul goes through and gives his definition of agape selfless love and he begins by saying that love is patient and kind last week we learned that love is not jealous and tonight Paul continues to explain the opposite of love by telling us that love does not brag and is not arrogant. Um, if you read through the book of First and Second Corinthians, then you know that this church was full of arrogance. In fact, five times they are described as prideful and arrogant. So rather than living with patience and love and kindness and performing those fruits of the Spirit, their lives exemplified selfish ambition, boasting, and pride which is very important for us to to remember something, okay? It's sobering to think about, but the truth is that these were a group of believers. They were a group of believers, but they seemed to consistently fall into the temptation of pride and selfishness and arrogance. And that was dividing the truth, or I'm sorry, dividing the church. And the truth is that we, you and I, as believers, are just as susceptible to those sins as they were. So we have to guard, first and foremost, our hearts against these sins of selfishness, pride, and arrogance that was dividing their church. First and foremost, in our heart, also in our church, and also um, in our families. So as leaders in your home, you need to carefully cultivate love in your family like a gardener would cultivate a garden. When Beth and I first moved to Spokane, Washington, we moved from Keller up to Spokane, and we moved into a house that had been owned by a master gardener. And it had an amazingly beautiful flower garden in the backyard, very large flower garden and beautiful lawn. And it bloomed nine months of the year. So every plant complemented another plant, gave it nourishment, added to the beauty, encouraged growth had different heights, complementary colors. When one thing would go dormant, there'd be another thing that was blooming. And it was, it was an amazing thing. And it gave us an appreciation 
for gardening. But the big problem that I had was that I was not a master gardener. All I knew is I really liked this thing, and I heard that you're supposed to fertilize gardens. And so I went and got some miracle Grow, and I looked on there, and it said that, I forget the exact measurements, but it was something like two tablespoons per gallon right, of water, and you mix this in. But I wanted to really feed this garden, right? So if two tablespoons of this miracle Grow were good, four would be better. That's how dumb I was, believe it or not, right? I thought I knew better and ended up killing these plants, a lot of them. It's very sad. I vaguely remember Beth cautioning against it, but I didn't listen, and I don't remember her ever saying, I told you so, so good job. <laughs> but, so we moved from Spokane, we went to Idaho, and we decided that we wanted to plant a vegetable garden, okay? And it didn't go well. Right? It was kind of a waste of money and a big waste of time because it's very cold there and the season is very short. But the next year we were there, somebody gave us a greenhouse. And so we realized that if, and we also realized that if we moved the location of where our garden was to this pasture that used to be a horse farm, that was very, very rich soil. Okay, so, and then we did some research. Beth actually took a class related to the climate up there. The climate up there is like outer Mongolia. And so you can't plant the same things and expect the same results in the same way as you would somewhere else. So she took a class, did some research, and found out about something called companion gardening. Okay, something you probably already know about. But it's basically if you plant certain plants next to another one, they have a symbiotic relationship, and they grow, and they flourish, and they help each other. For example, if you plant basil next to your tomatoes, it makes the tomatoes taste better, and it helps them grow. Okay? And so some plants work together in companion gardening, Others don't work so well together. If, you're not, if it's not a companion, it will steal nutrients, steal things from the soil, and become more or less enemies. So you have some things that are friends to your plants and some things that are enemies. Well, we worked hard on cultivating that garden, and that year was an unbelievable success, and it was really fun. Well, in that same way, you and I need to learn to glorify God by cultivating, nurturing love in your home. We need to research how to become master gardeners of Christ-like love towards your spouse and towards your children in your home. What are love's companions? What are its enemies? How do we prepare the soil to nurture love? Well, we need to know what will cultivate love and what will destroy it so we'll know what to avoid and what to put our heart into. And here in 1 Corinthians 13.4, Paul gives us two more attitudes that are enemies to love. Two more attitudes to avoid if you want to cultivate love in your home. Love does not brag, and it is not arrogant. These two actions are like roundup on your tomato garden. So let's research love's enemies first. Love's enemies. And the first enemy to love is the braggart. The braggart. First, Paul says that agape love does not brag. Now, this particular word, translated brag, means to heap praise on oneself, and it is specifically related to speech. Okay, so Proverbs 27.2 says, Let someone else praise you and not your own lips. So it's the fool that praises himself, but the fool also scoffs at that and will brag about himself. Anyways, the word means to behave like a braggart or to become... my. My personal favorite description, a windbag. 
right? A windbag. Last time we saw that love is not jealous. So love does not envy what other peoples have or wish ill on them because they have what you want. Love doesn't do that. And now the Holy Spirit is telling us that love keeps us from boasting and bragging about what we already have or what we already have done. So jealousy puts people down and this boasting or bragging builds, builds self up. C.S. Lewis called bragging the utmost evil and the epitome of pride. And it's no wonder that bragging is the enemy of love because love is focused on the loved one, but bragging is focused on self first. Magnifies my accomplishments. Too occupied with self-promotion to notice and love others. And the result of bragging makes other people feel inferior. So boasting is love turned inward. Agape love is turned outward to others. Now bragging, of course, is universally disliked. Okay? And you make yourself a fool when you do that. Proverbs 11.2 says, Boastful people will be shamed. I don't know, I'm sure you have met a windbag that's constantly bragging about themselves. What did you think of that guy? Probably not your favorite person to hang out with because no one likes to show off, but for some reason we all think that it's endearing when we do it. We don't like it when other people do it, but those people will really enjoy it if I talk about myself, right? Because we're, we're prone to become a braggart when we forget that everything that we have comes from God and that he deserves the praise and the glory. We exercise the gifts and the talents that he gave. We have the house that we have because of his hand. We have the children that he has given us because he is good to us. Your children come to Christ because he calls them, not because you're a super dad or super mom. But if you forget that, you'll start to begin to boast in your ability, in your hard work, in your intellect. Well, the truth is, and something we need to remember, is that we are merely instruments in God's hands. So you may have a particularly gifted child, and I hope that you do. Well, you're going to need to shepherd them away from sinful boasting towards their siblings and towards their friends, help them see that everything that they have, those gifts, those talents that they have, whether that's athletic or intellectual or whatever, is a gift from God. You're going to have to parent them through that. Um, you also need to guard against this in your marriage. Um, Rob Green gives a helpful reminder to us on this, um, and he paints kind of a hypothetical scenario, okay? So he says this. Let's say that Julie and Tom were recently married, and if there are any Toms or Julies in here, this is a fictional scenario, and any similarities to persons living or dead is purely um, coincidental, okay? Tom is bright and handsome and a mover and a shaker. Julie works and does a good job, but she's neither as bright nor gregarious, which means popular or social, I had to look that up, gregarious as her husband. Julie must guard against jealousy, okay? But at the same time, he says, Tom cannot be, or cannot remind Julie just how lucky she is to have him. And this hypothetical Tom is a real piece of work, okay? <laughs> he cannot remind Julie how lucky she is to have him. He cannot strive for the attention of other people, especially other women. Of course not. He cannot compare his salary to hers and act like he's doing all the work. He cannot expect to be rewarded when he does something nice for Julie. He can't explain to other couples that he is the prime example of love, obviously, right? And this message was 
particularly powerful in a Corinthian church that was full of pride. Now, as off-putting as that sounds, this guy Tom, this is something that we're all prone to do. Maybe not to that extreme, but in smaller measures. And the Corinthians were spiritual show-offs as well, as they were kind of peacocking their showy sign gifts all over the place. And so they boasted about their allegiance to different apostles. And they boasted and bragged about their tolerance and enlightened attitude towards sin, which kind of enabled sin to run amok in the church. And they boasted about the gifts that they had. In fact, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Specific here is they were boasting about the different groups that they had kind of split into. I was of, I am of Paul, I am of um, Apollos or Cephas or Jesus, and they had kind of got into these groups and they were boasting about something related to that, right? And in response to their boasting, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, the Holy Spirit told them, who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So Paul is asking them a question that we need to ask ourselves. Why are we boasting? And he asks this in three parts. The first question is, who regards you as superior? He says, why do, why do you think that your group is better? Why do you think that your spiritual gift is better? What is it about this thing that makes you think it's better than other people? So stop and think for a minute. Who actually thinks that you are better than someone else? Who actually thinks that? You were redeemed by the same Lord and are no better than anyone else. So question number two that he asks, why do you, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything you have, everything that you're boasting about, everything that you're boasting in was given to you, he says. What do any of us have that was not given to us? Think about it. Your life, God gave you your life. Your salvation is by grace through faith alone, lest no one should what? Boast. Food and water comes from God. Spiritual gifts come right from the Holy Spirit. You did nothing to get these gifts. Your IQ and your intellect, your athletic ability or lack thereof, all come from God. Now, you might have worked hard for what you have, but God gave you that opportunity. Put the people and the circumstances in your life that put you along that path. Put you in this country, for example, where you can prosper on and on you get right down to it. Everything that we have is from God's providential hand. Everything the Corinthians had was given to them, and everything you and I have was given to us. Which leads to the final question that he asks, the inevitable question that follows, if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Everything you have is given to you, so why are you boasting about it? That's very childish, right? It's like the kid that gets the bike for Christmas and then rides right down to his friend's house and boasts about it that's what kids do not mature christians which is why paul said in first corinthians 9 16 if i preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting now think about this paul would have studied really hard he knew his bible inside and out he worked hard to hone his craft of evangelism he was probably pretty good at proclaiming the gospel and if anybody had the right to boast about that it would have been him but rather than boasting, he recognized that the opportunity, the gifts, the talents, the abilities that he had came from the Lord, which is why he told this same group in 2 Corinthians 10, 17, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Which is why he told the Galatians in Galatians 6, 14, 
Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every good thing comes from God, so we have no reason to boast. One commentator says this. He says, if you have a good pastor, God gave that to us. If you have good parents, God gave them to us. If we live in a good country, God gave that to us. If we have a good mind or creative talent, God gave it to us. We have no reason to boast either in people or possessions. Not only ministers, but all Christians are but God's stewards. Everything that we have is on loan from God and trusted to us for a while to use in serving him. So bragging is unloving and sinful because it takes the spotlight off of God and puts it right on me. The only person really that had a right to boast would have been Christ. But if you read through the Gospels, everything Christ did was not for his glory, but for the glory of his father. He said in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. In other words, let me go through this. Help me get through the cross, not to glorify me, but why? So that the son may glorify you. The sinless God of all creation became flesh dwelt among us, died on the cross to glorify his Father. Everything you have and everything you do for the kingdom should point to God. So remember when you're tempted to boast, remind yourself that everything you have comes from God. Turn your boasting into praise. Put the spotlight on him. When you're tempted to turn your love inward, remember that love does not brag and turn that outward on others. So to cultivate love in your home you need to put away bragging. And of course, boasting stems from pride, which is what Paul lists next here in 1 Corinthians 13.4. The next enemy here, love's next enemy, is the arrogant person. The arrogant. The word here is a synonym for pride, and it means to blow up or inflate. To have an ex- exaggerated, blown up, or inflated view of yourself. So you can see why bragging and pride go together like a hand in glove. Pride must brag about its accomplishment. So pride means to puff up, and bragging is a blowhard. You're blowing that out so everybody knows all about you. Pride is the opposite of love because like boasting, it says, I'm here for me, not you. And if you read through the Bible, pride is particularly despised in Scripture. One verse is Proverbs 16, 5, which says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. So if you want to be loathed by God, have a prideful heart. And he says, assuredly, he will not be unpunished. If you're never going to humble yourself, see yourself as a sinner in need of salvation, you are loathed by God. You are an abomination to him. Scripture never tells us that we need to esteem ourselves more, that we need more self-esteem, that we need to consider ourselves more highly it never says that scripture assumes that you love yourself it knows that you do correctly right ephesians chapter 5 it says that you are to love your spouse how as you love yourself it assumes you love yourself fully and completely you care about yourself you're supposed to nourish and care for your spouse in that same way scripture never tells us that we need to puff ourselves up because pride is the enemy of love and you are called to selfless love. If we look at the ultimate cause of pride, like the prime source, 
It is self-worship. Stuart Scott has a really good definition of pride. Okay, and listen how many times self is in this definition. He says the mindset, pride is the mindset of self. It's a master's mindset rather than that of a servant. A focus on self and service of self, a pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation and a desire to control and use all things for who? Self. So selfish, self-worship is the ultimate cause of pride. But scripture also gives us a myriad of secondary causes of pride, which we need to listen to and we need to eradicate out of our life. Now, most of these things are not sin, inherently sinful, but that doesn't mean they can't be a source of pride in our life. In fact, some of these things are good. And they are listed in Matthew 23, 6 is the pride of possession, uh, position. The pride of position, okay? Authority. So you are the head of your house. That could puff you up with pride. You might be the boss at work. It's not a bad thing, but it could be a source of pride. Also, another secondary cause of pride could be ability, achievement or wealth, possessions, things that you have, knowledge, things that you know, learning, things that you're currently learning or have already learned, Spiritual attainment, even growth in Christ-likeness to an immature person, ironically, can lead to being puffed up and proud. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 1.8. Spiritual experience. Have you ever ran into somebody who had an experience, a so-called experience from the Holy Spirit and then you tried to bring Scripture to bear on that? It's like talking to a brick wall. It's like they're so prideful because they've had this so-called experience. So, Spiritual experience, spiritual giftedness. That was the problem here in uh, Corinth. Spiritual giftedness, self-righteousness. You know, I'll no longer struggle with that sin. I just can't believe you're still dealing with that. Or being esteemed or like. Guys, our flesh is bent towards pride. And especially when we think about social media, this is the world of social media. Look at me and how great I am and all the things I'm doing and all the things that I say and here's this guy over here who's saying this but scripture says this and listen to how I, you know, whatever, defeated him with my logical argument. All of that stuff can puff you up in pride because rather than unifying and working together in harmony to cultivate love, the effects of pride is division, anger, and jealousy. Back to Stuart Scott and his booklet from pride to humility he lists lists some ways that pride can manifest itself in in your life okay now i kind of turn those into questions and i'm going to list these questions i want you to just listen to them and hopefully this might help you diagnose some of this stuff because pride can be pretty sneaky pride doesn't have a lot of flashy outward signs in and of itself but it manifests itself in things like boasting or things like anger you deserve a certain amount of respect and when you don't get it you lash out okay and so it, it can be a blind spot to a lot of us but ultimately if you are breathing you have a problem with pride so ask these questions to to yourself as i read them do i complain against or pass judgment on god in other words look at what god has done to me after all i've done for him do i have an attitude of gratitude and thankfulness or do I have an attitude of entitlement? How do I respond when someone doesn't give me the respect that I deserve? Maybe your spouse or your children or your coworkers or your employees just don't give you the respect that you deserve. Do I see myself as better than others? 
Do I look down on them? Do I, am I constantly sarcastic? Do I poke fun of other people? Do I have an inflated view of my importance or my gifts or my abilities? Or do I focus on my lack of gifts and abilities? Do I talk too much? Do I always need to be the center of attention? Do I often think about what others think of me? Do I try to cover my faults and mistakes so that no one knows? Do I need to be in control of various situations? Am I teachable? How do I respond when someone corrects me? Do I shift blame to others? Well, what about you? You're saying this, but what about you? You have problems here too. Do I serve others or do I expect to be served? And finally, how often do I pray? Do I really think that I need God's help? Asking some of those questions will help you diagnose where you need to grow in this area. What area could be an area of pride? Because arrogance, pride, and boasting all, are all enemies of love. You will not be able to cultivate a home that is filled with love if your heart is filled with pride. So boasting and arrogance are a couple of love's enemies. Now let's shift gears a little bit. And as we try to grow love in our homes, what would be some good companions? We're going to plant some companion plants to love. What are love's friends? Well, there's a lot of qualities that would help love grow in your home, but I just want to look at the opposite of boasting and the opposite of pride. And those will give us a couple of very important ones to start out with. Okay, so first, the first friend to love is the encourager, the person that is encouraging. Love encourages and builds up. So you need to put away boasting. And you need to put on encouraging and exhortation. Take your mind, actually just take your mind off of yourself and put it on other people. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 um, commands us. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Encur to encourage means to someone or sorry, to summon to one's aid or call upon for help, to build someone up verbally. And you can have a tremendous help. You can be a tremendous help to other people by encouraging them. It is amazing what a word of encouragement does to build up and foster love in a relationship, particularly in your home. Romans 15.4 says, Encouragement gives hope. So have you ever been struggling, maybe emotionally, spiritually, physically, and someone called with an encouraging word? Think about what that did. It gave you hope, helped you persevere and keep going. Maybe you're struggling with a way wayward child. Someone calls to let you know that, you know, you have been faithful. From what I can see, you love your kids, you love the Lord, and you're trying and you are a good parent. Those can be super helpful, loving comments. Maybe an exhortation to keep up the fight. You know, I know things are a struggle right now, but God knows. He's on his throne. Press on. Don't give up. Don't grow weary in doing good. Maybe a comforting word at a difficult time. Maybe gratitude for a job well done. You know, thank you for all the hard work on that. That was a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of effort. And praise God, it was successful. Good job. Thank you for doing that. Those things are like balm to a wound like nourishment to the soul. Boasting says, look at me, and is self-focused, honest encouragement, honest encouragement, not flattery. Flattery is just another form of pride to get somebody to like you. 
But honest encouragement requires you to look in the good for the good in others. You know, as parents, we can become experts at pointing out what our kids are doing wrong. In fact, we don't have to be experts of that because it's everywhere, right? You see it all the time. And you could just pinpoint things all day, every day about what your kids are doing wrong. But without a dose of encouragement mixed in, it's going to start exasperating your kids. Ephesians 6, 4 that we are not to, says we are not to provoke or exasperate our children. If all you do is point out the wrong and don't mix in encouragement, that's exactly what's going to happen. So encourage them when they do the right thing. And sometimes you're going to have to be Sherlock Holmes. You're going to have to look for something good. <laughs> and that's okay. Find something to encourage your kids with because Hebrews 3.13 says this. It says it tells us to encourage one another daily. Every day, daily, as long as it's today, that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Your encouragement, loving encouragement to a brother or a sister or your children can help ward off, Hebrews 3.13 says, sin's temptation. So this should be a daily exercise that we are doing, encouraging one another. Jesus was an encourager. Jesus never shied away from telling his disciples that trouble's coming. He wanted them to be prepared for the persecution that was to come. But he also quickly encouraged them so they didn't lose heart. John 16, 33, he tells his followers, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, was not thinking of himself. He humbly and lovingly put his thoughts on his disciples and encouraged them and loved them. John 13 says that, or we read through John 13, rather, and the disciples are devastated because they found out three very disheartening things. Okay, one, one of, one of them amongst them was a traitor, and it wasn't like Judas was the uh, villain in, in the Disney movie that you always know who it is, right? It, nobody knew it was Judas. It was their friend. Jesus says he's a betrayer. He's a traitor. It devastated them. Secondly, most importantly, Jesus told them that he was leaving and then third, the leader of the disciples, Peter, was going to deny Christ. Devastating to them. Jesus told them that, and then he quickly encouraged them in chapter 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. I'm going away, yes, but I go to prepare a place for you that you may come to me. And I'm going to send the helper. Those were encouraging words to them. Jesus was an encourager. And encouragement will help you love like Jesus loved. So we are commanded to walk in agape love, and so encouragement is a vital piece as we seek to honor God by loving one another. So put away boasting and put on encouragement. Finally, um, an invaluable friend to those seeking to love is the humble. Which is, I don't know why I put the the there. That's kind of weird. Humility, whatever, just go with it, right? Humility is love's sure companion. Humility is love's constant companion. When Paul is writing uh, the Ephesians, you read through chapter 1 through 3, and it's all a lot of Christian doctrine, salvation, predestination, sanctification, perseverance, rich, rich doctrine. Then you turn on the page, chapter 4, and it's all Christian practice. He says, in light of all of that that you believe, the fact that you love Jesus you need to walk according to what it says. And what's the first thing that he says? The first thing he says is to walk worthy of your calling by being humble and gentle. Humility 
is so important. Stuart Scott gave us a definition earlier of pride, and he also has a good definition of humility. And just listen to the contrast here between the two. Humility is the mindset of Christ. It's a servant's mindset. Focus on God and others, a pursuit of recognition, exaltation of God, a desire to glorify and please the Lord in all things and by all things that he has given us. So you probably heard the contrast there, but pride focuses on self. The humble person is focused on God and others. Pride seeks recognition and praise and approval and lashes out in anger and jealousy if he doesn't get it. The humble person has no need for recognition, and so they're not angry or impatient when they don't get it. Pride sees the source of good from me. Humility recognized God as the source of good. Pride sees the means of good as through me. Humility recognized God recognizes God as the means through which all good things come. I came across this story related to humility. It's really good. It's about William Carey. Okay, William Carey is often referred to, this says, as the father of modern missions. He was a brilliant linguist, responsible for translating parts of the Bible into no fewer than 34 different languages and dialects. 34 languages and dialects. I would be tempted to brag about that. I'm just telling you. It says that he had been raised in a simple home in England and in his early manhood worked as a cobbler. That's a shoemaker, not a maker of blueberry cobbler, in case you're wondering. Worked as a cobbler. Well, in India, he often was ridiculed by his l- because of his low birth and former occupation. At a dinner party one evening, a snob said, I understand, Mr. Carey, that you once worked as a shoemaker. Oh, no, your lordship, he, Carey replied. I was not a shoemaker. I was only a shoe repairman. He's like, William Carey had Christ's humility. Christ was a great encourager. He's also the perfect prime example of humility. Zechariah 9.9 describes the coming messianic king as this he says he'll be just endowed with salvation and humble mounted on a donkey even the colt the foal of a donkey jesus described himself could have described himself in a lot of different ways but he chose to describe himself as being gentle and lowly at heart are you gentle with your spouse do you consider yourself lowly at heart in fact turn to philippians chapter 2 almost done here, but let's look at Philippians chapter 2. And this is Paul's description of Jesus used as an example for how we are to act. He says in in verse 3 of um, Philippians chapter 2, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. He says you need to be humble. And then he gives an example of humility. Verse 6, he says, Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. It wasn't something that he held on to. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant or a slave, being made in the likeness of man. So Christ, the God of all creation, emptied himself. Means he made himself nothing. How? We did that by taking on the form of a bondservant, taking on the form of a slave and being made in the image of man. That is a picture of humility. The word become flesh, the God of all creation becoming a man is 
the perfect picture of humility. And if we back up one verse to verse 5, he says, this is how you are instructed. That's Christ's attitude. That needs to be your attitude too. He says, have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. That was Christ's attitude. He was humble. And that should be your attitude. And Christ's attitude of humility led to servant action. Verse 8 says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His humble attitude led to loving action. Love is an action. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to be served, but to humbly serve others and to lay down his life for you. And he demonstrated humility throughout his life. Another prime example is in John 13, who, again, remember, this is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. In in John 13, wrapped himself in a slave's towel, picked up a water basin, and washed the disciples' feet. That was not the master's task. That was the task of the lowest slave. Humble service shows your love. It is love's companion. Christ's humble actions spoke volumes to the disciples. There was no doubt in their mind that he loved them because he had, serv- he had sacrificed that service to them. So you need to ask for humility. Ask to have a lowly attitude. Ask the Lord to help you think of others as more important than yourself. And then you need to take action. You need to serve your family. You need to serve your spouse. 1 John 3, 16 and 18 says, Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Love requires action. So practically speaking, guys, let me just talk to you. That means taking the initiative, doing some tasks around the house that are traditionally called women's work. Okay, Without being asked, pick up the vacuum, help with the laundry, do the cooking and the cleaning up after dinner. Ask your wife what would make her feel loved And then do that. Wives, same to you. Ask your husband what would make him feel loved and then go out of your way to humbly serve them just like Christ served his disciples. Willing to do anything. That's the example. And that is how you will cultivate love in your home. By letting humility be your companion. By remembering that whatever we have is a gift from the Lord and remembering to give him the glory for that. Follow Christ's example. Pick up the towel. Pick up the water basin and lovingly serve your spouse. You know, this world can be a cold place of boasting and pride, a place that prizes pride and scoffs at humility. It's like that tundra in Idaho. Very difficult for things to grow. Well, let your home be a green- greenhouse where love can grow and flourish. Pull out the weeds of pride and boasting that can choke the love in your home and plant a good measure of humility and encouragement so that love can thrive. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for help, Lord. Um, This is a hard task for us to uh, raise our children, bring them up in the training and admission of the Lord, to, to love our spouses as you love the church. Lord, but you have given us all that we need to do that in your word. Lord, so I pray that we would put away things like jealousy and pride and boasting. 
put, put away self. Lord, I ask that you would help us, strengthen us, give us a desire to boast in you, to encourage one another, or to be humble and to, to allow that to flow into loving service in our homes. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If uh, you guys can be dismissed to your small groups, if you don't have a small group, please come see me and I will tell you uh, where you need to go.